It is good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning, and uh, I ask if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. This morning's message comes to us from verses 9 through 12, but just for the sake of context, uh, we'll go ahead and begin reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. So chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. So let's... um, Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop of use, uh, crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you are kind and merciful to us, showering us in the grace of your gospel, shining upon us the light of your truth that comes from Christ and through your spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would not only shine the light of truth and the showers of your grace upon us, but that you would sow the seeds of the gospel deep within our hearts and cause much fruit to come up because of it, that this fruit would increase 30, 60, and 100-fold, all to the glory and praise of your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, it's particularly the letter uh, that he writes to the churches of Galatia, Uh, that we find him the most upset. Uh, We can say that this is where he exerts his greatest amount of consternation and even, dare I say, anger at the church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, the apostle Paul rebuked them 
because they had essentially embraced a false gospel. And so he pronounced his anathema, his curse upon anybody who would preach a false gospel. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians, he uh, cries out to the churches, he says, Who has bewitched you, O foolish Galatians? And then, of course, in chapter 5, verse 12, he goes as far as to say that I wish the false teachers, the circumcision party, would go as far as to emasculate themselves. These are harsh words. And so the impression that we get is that here is Paul, the angry and uh, very wrathful apostle. On the other hand, we also can see in that very book, in chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians, that the apostle Paul says that, that for anybody that is caught in a transgression, he says, you who are spiritual should restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness and humility. So in other words, we can see that the Apostle Paul can get quite exercised, but on the other hand, we can also see that he can show gentleness, that he can show kindness and mercy and grace. In the same way a parent might yell at a child, at his child, for example, to say, watch out, there's a car coming down the road, you know, get out of the street, And then immediately upon the heels of yelling at the child in a very harsh tone, embrace that child with a hug, showing how much care, concern, and love that the parent has uh, for the child. I think that this is the nature of the Apostle Paul's stern rebuke. He's basically saying, hey, watch out. Watch out. You are pursuing a false gospel. And then in the same hand, he can also say, but nevertheless, I love you and I want to encourage you and I want to show you how much uh, Christ loves you. Well, I think that's the nature of what we find here in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12 of the book of Hebrews. The author, as we have just heard moments ago, has words of strong rebuke in the previous sections. But here in verses 9 through 12, he also has some encouraging words, some words of grace, some words of kindness. And so what he's doing is he's conveying words of care and hope to reassure the recipients of his letter, uh, to reassure them of God's love for them, as well as even the certainty of their salvation. But at the same time, he's also exhorting them, he's encouraging them to show an earnest effort in pursuing the gospel of Christ. In other words, if I can put it very bluntly, he's encouraging them to to work hard. Now, contrary to popular misconceptions, I don't want us to think that the grace of God of which we constantly hear that God saves us, God sanctifies us, uh, God convicts us, God conforms us to the image of Christ. As much and as true as those things are, those types of ideas are in no way incompatible with hard work when it comes to our sanctification. The grace of God and earnest effort are in no way incompatible, but nevertheless do sweetly comply with one another. And so what I want us to do is I want us to see how the author to the book of Hebrews here explains these things in verses 9 through 12. First, we want to take a look at what he has to say about the encouraging words 
how he wants to spur uh, the, uh, the recipients of his letter on in their sanctification. And then secondly, how he encourages them uh, in verses 11 and 12 to, to work hard, to labor at their sanctification. So let's first give thought to what he has to say in the first two verses in 9 and 10 about the words of encouragement. Now, remember, just going back to chapter 5, verse 11, that the author of Hebrews has a pointed rebuke. Uh, And it goes all the way back to chapter 5, verse 11, where he calls them uh, dull of hearing, where he says in verse 12, you need somebody to, to teach you the basic principles again. You need milk, not solid food. You know, in my own household, I don't know about yours, but sometimes I hear of families where uh, they say that uh, their kids consume two to three gallons of milk a week, uh, maybe more in some cases. Maybe my family's a weird one, but we don't drink milk in our house. About the only time we drink milk is maybe if we happen to have, yes, you guessed it, a pack of Oreos in the house and, and you need a little bit of milk to go with those Oreos. But aside from that, we really don't have milk. Why? Well, because, you know, the kids have kind of moved on from it. Uh, as my wife and I have. And so this is, I think, the point that the author's saying. He's like, hey, you need to move on from milk. That's for children. And yet here you are. You are, are, are being so slothful and so lazy that we need to go back to first principles. We need to go back to the ABCs. He also spurs them on in chapter 6, verse 1, when he says you have to leave the elementary principles uh, of Christ, the elementary doctrines, and go on to maturity. But then a second element in his rebuke, as we see in verses 4 through 8, is that he was looking to dissuade his recipients from wanting to turn back to Judaism. And he gave them a warning basically saying that the Christian faith is not a revolving door. It's not a revolving door where you can embrace Christ by faith, reject him, and then re-embrace him again by faith. He says in verse 4 of chapter 6, it's impossible having fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, the author's not saying that uh, you, you can lose your salvation, but rather warning those who might be tempted, there are no refunds. There are no mulligans. There are no do-overs. You can't go back. Now, it's on the heels of this we can say that the, the, this twin-horned rebuke, you know, mature in the faith, don't be tempted to turn away that he offers some encouraging words. And we read the first of those in verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So note these words here, he's basically saying, look, I don't want you to fear falling away. I want to assure you of better things. And so he's saying you can't lose your salvation And he's assuring them of all of the blessings that belong to salvation. In other words, what he's saying is, in Pauline words, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to its completion. He's pointing them to the promises of God. Christ will complete the work of salvation that has begun in us. 
You know, or another way is we can go back to the words of Christ himself when he says in John chapter 6, verses 37 and 39, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, I don't know why, but I can remember uh, there was a children's sermon when I was in, uh, when I was in doing my post-grad work in, in Scotland, and the, the, the pastor got up and he gathered the children around him, and he showed them all a dollar bill, and he rolled that dollar bill up, and he placed that dollar bill in his closed fist, and then he invited the children to come up and say, go ahead, try to take that dollar out of my fist. And they couldn't. You know, you close your fist. A grown man closes his fist quite hard around a rolled up dollar bill. uh, And no child is really going to be able to get to it. And he used that illustration to make the point that such is the nature of Christ's grip upon us. In that once he lays hold of us, once he saves us, it's never to let us go. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. As Charles Spurgeon says, the glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. You know, that's something that should greatly reassure us that there is literally nothing that we can do that will cause God to turn away from us. Nothing that we can do that will loosen Christ's grip upon us. Nothing that anybody else in this world, whether death or sword, famine or peril, as the Apostle Paul says so beautifully in Romans chapter 8, will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Famous a Christian woman, Corey Ten Boom, who participated in the, the protection of Jews under Nazi occupation, said, In God's faithfulness lies eternal security. The, the certainty and the surety of our salvation lies with God. And His faithfulness, His promises, His fidelity. And so this is why he assures them. He says, I'm gonna, we're going to speak of better things. I want to point you to the promises of God. And then he reinforces this when he says in verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your, hard wor- your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, so here, notice what he's saying is he's saying, look, I may have delivered some some harsh words to you, a necessary rebuke, but God isn't unfair. In other words, just because a parent rebukes and disciplines a child does not mean that he does not love the child. In fact, the contrary is true. It's the fact that the parent loves the child is why he rebukes the child. You know, it's something that takes a long time for children to learn. And I, I, you know, I remember hearing it as a child myself. I didn't believe it when my parents told me. I've then since repeated the same words to my own children. I say, I tell them, son or, you know, daughter, I know it doesn't seem this way, but I'm rebuking you because I love you. If I didn't care, I would let you do whatever you wanted. You know, and I remember as a child thinking, I don't know about this. <laughs> this. This doesn't sound right. You know, I don't like this discipline. And it's because my parents 
were pointing me to Christ. And the process of sanctification is sometimes a painful one when we have to have the idols in our lives pried out of our hands. And and this is what the author is doing with the rebuke. He's giving them the rebuke, but at the same time he says, God isn't unjust. He's not unfair. He's not going to overlook the things that you have done. You see, so often in life we think that rebuke and love are incompatible Shakespeare says in a midnight summer's uh, a midnight uh, sorry midsummer's night's dream, oh why rebuke you uh, him that loves you so lay breath so bitter on your bitter foe. Shakespeare characterizes a, bu- a rebuke as bitter breath. But just because the author rebuked his recipients for their sloth, and for entertaining the idea of going back to the Old Testament ways. And so he warned them against this temptation. Didn't mean that God would somehow ignore their work and love. As Solomon says in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and following, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So often it's the case that our enemies will tell us exactly what we want to hear. You know, and, and that can be a dangerous thing when we surround ourselves with yes men, people who only tell us what we want to hear rather than a genuine friend who will shoot us straight and say, hey, you were out of line there. And if we say this about a good friend, then how much more can we appreciate this about our faithful God who will rebuke us or a faithful preacher of scripture as we find here in the book of hebrews who says hey you gotta you gotta watch out for this temptation you're acting like children grow in the faith grow in the faith one early church father by the name of saint basil of caesarea says reprimand and rebuke should be accepted as healing remedies for vice and as conducive to good health From this, it's clear that those who pretend to be tolerant because they wish to flatter, those who thus fail to correct sinners actually cause them to suffer supreme loss and plot the destruction of that life, which is their true life. Reprimand brings healing. It brings restoration. It brings about greater sanctification with the power of the Spirit. The absence of a reprimand is to let sin run riot. It's to teeter on the edge of disaster. And so this is why I think we find both. We find the author of Hebrews giving forth serious and a heavy rebuke, but on the other hand, at the same time, he can dish out words of encouragement so that he would remind them, hey, that this is ultimately for your blessing. Therefore, do not, don't, don't flee. Flee instead to, to the grace of God in Christ. Receive the rebuke, but understand that God is faithful and he will see your process of salvation through to its end. And so this brings us to our second point, which is the latter two verses, verses 11 and 12. And that assured of God's love and faithfulness, the author uh, spurs on his readers 
to hard work. He says in verses 11 and 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here he spurs them on to hard work, to strive for the grace of God. You know, which at first glance, this may seem uh, somewhat counterintuitive or oxymoronic, like a jumbo shrimp. How, how can you have a shrimp that is super small, but yet jumbo? How can you have the grace of God, which undergirds uh, our entire salvation, and yet at the same time, work hard? Well, again, he says there in verse 11, we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness, earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I do not believe that the author is saying, grab yourself by your bootstraps, pull as hard as you can. He's not telling them, find assurance for your salvation in yourself. This is not a self-fueled assurance. Rather, in context, and especially as in connected to what he said there in verse 10, he, he points them to God, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, he's saying, find full assurance, strive to find the encouragement and the assurance of your salvation in the only source from which it comes, which is in the triune God. So he's holding out the faithfulness of God as the foundation for their earnest effort, for their hard work. You know, the Westminster Confession, chapter 17, paragraph 2, says that the perseverance of the saints, saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and the merit of the intercession of Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, the nature of the covenant of grace from which all arises the certainty and infallibility thereof. You know, so what, what the Westminster divines are saying is that the certainty of our salvation, the assurance of the hope that we have flow from God the Father through God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. And so the author's saying, be earnest, seek your assurance in the triune God. In the light of the fact that God has chosen you in his love, that Christ has lived, suffered, and died, and been raised for you, and the fact that you possess the down payment, the earnest, if you will, of the abiding presence of the Spirit, the author's saying in the light of that, work hard. Work hard. I can remember being in seminary, and uh, I felt like, uh, at least intellectually speaking, I felt like I was uh, rubbing two sticks together to try to make fire. You know, I was always struggling, trying to work hard, and I'd work hard, and, and the grades weren't always what I wanted them to be. Whereas I had a friend who I thought was really intellectually gifted, and he would saunter in to the cafeteria, and he would have maybe, you know, he, he would have his stubble because he didn't shave, his, his head, uh, hair would be tussled, and I would say, what, what happened to you? He says, oh, well, I pulled an all-nighter because I, I, had, I had to write my paper. I didn't start it until last night. 
And uh, I had, you know, I, I always like to work ahead. I tried an all-nighter once, didn't like it uh, back in, in high school, got an F on the paper. So that's the last time I ever do that again. And so uh, I would work for weeks ahead of time, turn in my paper, and uh, I would get maybe like a B plus. And then my friend who pulled the all-nighter, who I think was more intellectually gifted than me, he'd come, up, come away with an A. And I would get angry. I would get angry, not because I got the B plus. I mean, you know, you, 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 do as, as, you work as best as you can, and, and then you get the grade that you get, and that's good. But it used to make me angry. I told him, I, I confronted him one time, and I said, uh, you know something, you're wasting your intellectual gifts from God. I said, you have the ability to, to, to do so much more than an all-nighter. Do you know how far you could, you could climb up the ladder, so to speak, and you're wasting your God-given intellectual gifts? You're cooking with gas, and I'm over here rubbing two sticks together. Why are you doing this? In other words, in the light of what God has given you, use it. Work hard. So this is why the author of Hebrews is saying, with as much as God has given you, with the, the, the fairness that he exhibits, with the grace that he has poured out in Christ, don't be lazy. Verse 12, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's another way of saying, look to the great saints of Scripture. Those who excelled. Those who, who really strove to, to, uh, to know God. And imitate them. Do what they do. You know, so in this vein, uh, you know, one of the things that I constantly do is, at least in my own life, is, is if, you know, I, I look for role models, whether it's successful athletes, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, eminent scholars, whether it's great saints. And I think that is, in a sense, is what the author is saying. He's saying, imitate those who have worked hard. But at the end of the day, what his counsel here amounts to is that the grace of God in Christ and in the gospel is never an excuse for sloth. Never an excuse for sloth. You know, what Paul writes, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following, when he says, For you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, there's the grace of God poured out. You can't earn your salvation. But on the other hand, he says, in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's grace isn't an excuse for sloth, but rather it's the fuel for earnest effort and for hard work. Because God has given us so much of his mercy and grace, <coughs> we should therefore take that grace that he has given us and use it. If God has created us, in, created us in Christ Jesus for good work, then we should seek to walk in those good works, not to turn away from them, not to look for the easy path, but to ask, for, uh, ask the Lord, where would you have me serve? How would you have me use the grace that you have given me? 
You know, I, I don't know if we've taken note of this, but if we think about how much the Apostle Paul heralded the grace of God, I mean, we could perhaps at this moment have many passages that come to mind as to how much he trumpeted God's free gift of salvation. But on the other hand, have you ever taken note as to how often he talks about hard work? 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's a pretty amazing statement when you think about it. When he says, compared to the others, the other apostles, I worked harder than they did. Acts chapter 20, verse 25. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul can say this about his own state and progress and growth and sanctification that, yes, it rested entirely upon the grace of God, but at the same time, it was in no way antithetical to working hard. I think this is why Paul, for example, called the Philippians to a similar striving for the gospel. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and following, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know, that very language of pressing on implies the idea that there's resistance, that there are obstacles. But nevertheless, Paul says, I press on. As he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which I think that you can say that this is language that Paul uses that comes from athletics, pressing on, straining forward. You know, we have to be willing, I think, to expend earnest effort in our Christian walk, but always doing so, drawing upon the grace of God in Christ. In other words, we do not work hard to be saved, but rather we work hard because we have been saved. How then can we strive towards the grace of God in order to bring about a greater conformity to Christ? We should ask ourselves and can't ask ourselves a number of questions. These are in no way exhaustive, but merely hopefully exemplary or illustrative of the types of questions that we should ask ourselves. But in the light of what the author says here in chapter 5, verse 11 and following, we should say, am I still feeding upon the basic principles of God's word? Am I still drinking milk? Or have I moved on to solid food? He says in verse 14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between or distinguish good from evil. 
Are we consuming that solid food so that we have that constant practice to distinguish between good and evil? And what I think the author here is saying, he's not talking about, say, uh, should I commit murder or should I not commit murder? That's a real ethical conundrum. (laughs) It's not. I mean, there are many ethical cases, cut and dry. Hey, no, that's stealing. You know, that's coveting. You know, but there are many other challenges in the Christian life where things don't look so black and white and they look more gray. And yet, by constant training in God's word, studying the law of God, understanding the wisdom of God, as we find it, say, in Proverbs or in the book of James, we can more readily distinguish between good and evil when things look gray. Here in our own context, Uh, In this country and in this state, in this presbytery and in this part of the world, we have a wealth of resources upon which we can draw to grow in our faith. There's study Bibles and commentaries and theology books and recorded sermons and lectures and podcasts and our confession and catechisms. We cannot say that we don't have access to a wealth of teaching, a wealth of teaching. But equally important, not only in terms of studying and showing ourselves as workmen approved, uh, we should ask ourselves, do we seek to put into practice what we have learned? Do we spend time in prayer before the throne of grace? It's a simple question, but an important one. What does James say? He says in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Could it be that some of the the challenges that we have in our sanctification are the struggles with besetting sin is because we are not praying that the Lord would help us to have victory over that besetting sin? By drawing near to God in prayer, we have Jesus Christ as our great high priest, the Holy Spirit interceding for us to conform us to Christ's image. In prayer, we find a wellspring of grace from which we can drink deeply to fuel our sanctification, to grow in grace, to grow in maturity so that we can, through constant practice, distinguish between good and evil. Do we put our holiness to practice? Do we seek to manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Do we spur one another on to good works? Do we encourage one another in holiness? In short, do we love one another with the same love that we have received in Christ? Lord Jesus in the Gospels tells of the pearl of great price, the parable of the pearl of great price. And that he says that the kingdom of heaven is like one who found a great pearl of, of great value. And he went and he sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field in which he found the pearl. And ultimately, I think that what that parable teaches us is the simple principle that when we discover the grace of God in Christ through the sovereign work of the Spirit, are we all in? Are we willing to put everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do into the service of Christ. Another way to state this same truth is, do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? This isn't just simply a matter of of duty, but rather it's ultimately should be the outflowing 
of a thankful heart and a heart that loves our triune God. There's a hymn that is based upon the pearl of great price, and it says, Oh, that pearl of great price, have you found it? Is the Savior supreme in your love? Oh, consider it well, ere your answer, as you hope for a welcome above. Have you given up all for this treasure? Have you counted past gains as but loss? Has your trust in yourself and in your merits come to naught before Christ and his cross? So, beloved, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Or in the words of Paul, press on and make sanctification your own because Christ Jesus has made you his own. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks because you are a father who loves us. And as a loving father, you willingly and lovingly and even gently rebuke us, O Lord, for our sloth. So often, O Lord, we allow many other pleasures and distractions and interests to tug at our affections and to draw us away from the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who should hold supreme place in our hearts. O Lord, we profess to love you with our mouths, but yet our lives are so very far away from you. Forgive us, O Lord, for our sloth. Forgive us, Lord, for um, failing to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we pray that in reliance upon your grace in Christ and through the power of your spirit, you would spur us on to diligent labor, to good hard work, that in the power of the grace of Christ, we would seek to draw nigh unto you, that we would soak in your word, that we would be in continual prayer, that you would cause us to grow in maturity in the faith so that we would love you as you have loved us, and that is we, so that we would love one another as you have loved us in Christ. Well, Father, we pray that above all else, you would fill our hearts with a joy and praise for you and a desire to know you better, that we might glorify you in everything that we say, do, and think, and that the outside world would be able to look at our lives, whether individually or as a corporate body here at this church, and that they would see the love that we have for you and for one another, and that they would be able to see how diligently we work at uh, living out your word. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.